0: Think back to a time when you had this fantasy of how brilliant you were going to be in this particular situation. Maybe you had this idea that you were going to be the perfect mother, making your baby's organic food from scratch and playing Mozart all day and doing baby massage. Or maybe you imagined how you would never let them see you sweat as the brand new lawyer in the cutthroat private equity firm. You were going to handle this shiz with flair and razor sharp tailoring. Ha! And then life starts lifing and it gets hard and you start having really human reactions to things. You're tired and you're crotchety and that ideal that you held up for yourself starts to peel away. Maybe something else happens like burnout and then you don't even recognize yourself anymore. So what do you do with your sky high standards then when you're flapping and doubting your enoughness? Today's guest is author and psychotherapist, Anna Mather. She's featured in the Daily Telegraph, Marie Claire, Stylist, Mother and Baby, and she's been on BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour, amongst other marvelous things. Her most recent book is The Little Book of Calm for Mums. We do touch on parenthood in this episode, but we reach much wider. You'll learn about what a core part of reclaiming our wholeness is self-acceptance it sounds so unsexy I know sorry about that and I think you're really going to dig Anna's take on this you will learn about the fish oil burp effect a new term we coined and that in itself is frankly worth listening to this episode for (laughs) you'll also learn two new tools that'll help you a ton if you struggle with sky-high ideals and standards that you set for yourself If you're new here, welcome, and a hearty hello if you are a regular listener. I'm Dr. Mandy Leto, executive coach and recovering perfectionist and overachiever. If your life looks shiny and impressive from the outside, but inside, you're exhausted, a wee bit cranky, and are just about holding yourself together with oat milk lattes and dry shampoo, welcome friend, you are in the right place. I drop us into the conversation where Anna and I are discussing a quote that really hits home. Ready? Let's roll. One of my absolute favorite quotes is by Ram Das, and he says, In most of our human relationships, we spend much of our time reassuring one another that our costumes are on straight And I think we construct so many costumes in our lives, not even intentionally, but like the costume, for example, of being this career woman. I am a lawyer. I am an investment banker. I am a psychologist. I am this. And our identity kind of forms around this. And underneath that career title might also be some little, I don't know, you'll give me the correct terminology, but there's almost like these characteristics or sub identities. Like, for example, after I finished my doctorate and I went into investment banking, I felt like that was my identity. I am now this shiny, intense, traveling the world, you know, successful investment banker. I've made it. And underneath that are little satelliting on that one. It's like I'm smart. I'm resilient. I'm tough. I can handle all the testosterone on the trading floor. I am all of these things. And I'm curious if prior to having kids, you had a kind of identity constructed for yourself around your career.
1: Interesting, isn't it? It's so interesting to think about what our identity sits in. And I think for me, so much of Yes, there was a time that I walked down the street towards my clinic in London and felt like I, you know, I was living the life that I really wanted to live. And I was proud of myself. And I had this kind of sense of almost bravado that I was I was living it. And then, you know, it's almost like the fantasy. You're kind of stepping into that fantasy and then it starts to kind of fray and crack and blur around the edges as you realise how normal these things become to you. You know, and you start you start encountering different challenges, and you start realizing that you're not always going to be good at it. And sometimes that challenges that sense of identity as well. And then you you can either then start to so I think for me it was either going to go two ways. I start then to feel like an imposter in my job because I feel like I need to maintain my own my own fantasy of what it was to be a psychotherapist, or I start to realise that actually it was just a fantasy and that everything just becomes more normal and everything, you know, the shine starts rubbing off in a while and the realities of the nitty gritty of doing any job and any role start to set in and be seen. So I think for me, it went down, fortunately, it went down that route of, you know, I'm just a human doing a thing and I'm passionate about it and I'm messy and it's going to be a bit messy too. And I think that approach for me has been one that I've had to go through that journey every time that there has been change or every time that there has been a different kind of hat that I've put on or identity that I have taken on. So motherhood as well is another one of those when I kind of left the hospital with my baby and I was, you know, walking around with a buggy and I'm living, I'm living this life. And then I realized that actually, you know, it's, that's not a fantasy either that's also rough around the edges and blurred and becomes normal and kind of go through this this period of almost loss and acceptance that loss that grief that this isn't everything I hoped it would be that this isn't going to give me that sense of yes I've made it I'm a good person I'm enough that I hoped it might so a grief that comes with that that it was just a fantasy and It was something you hungered for and wanted, but then the acceptance of the reality of it so that then you can kind of almost embody it a little bit more. Do you you see what I mean? And that's the same with the books and writing books. And I went through that process with that. And I think it can go either way where we feel like the imposter or we come to that acceptance that we are messy people. Therefore, there is always going to be mess. So that's it, folks. Shortest episode
0: ever. Thank you, Anna, and thank you, listeners. We'll be back in two weeks. (laughs) Kidding! But I do have to confess, my heart did sink a little when Anna wrapped all of that up so neatly. Like, yes, I had this career identity, fantasy, and very sensibly, I realized that life was messy and that I was messy. So I decided not to feel like an imposter. It sounds like she didn't flap. It sounds like she didn't double down or try to prove herself or push herself to her absolute limits to hold on to this fantasy image of the shiny career woman who is rocking life. In fact, it sounds like she very sensibly and logically and grown uply surrendered and gave herself oodles of self compassion. <laughs> Righto. Hmm. I restart the conversation where I actually confess to Anna that wowzers, girlfriend, that is not my experience at all. And then? I realize how my own assumptions so often catch me out. Let's drop back in. I think for a lot of the overachievers that I work with, there's this, there's more hooks into that specific identity. And I can only speak for myself. What you describe sounds so sensible and so balanced and so you know, of course that would be the way that it is, but that definitely wasn't my experience. Mm. So for example, when I was hanging by a thread in my investment banking career, because it's a tough environment, particularly back in the day for women, I think things have hopefully moved on, but I created this sort of Teflon armor. And I thought to my, like inside, I was like, this isn't me. But I was committed to this now and I was down the path. So I was going to hold on to this identity of success and being revered and everything that came with that. I was going to hold on to this tooth and nail, come what may. And I was not listening to that inner voice that, like, honey, you're really tired. It's okay to leave. And finally, when I did leave, And when I had my second child and I decided I was not going back to that and I've went into a massive burnout. So it was like this double whammy of leaving a career identity. And then all of a sudden the burnout was so bad that I was struggling to climb stairs. I couldn't wash my own hair at some stage. It was, it was bad. I spent the best year, part of a year in bed, unable to compulsively Do. So that felt like this drying out period of, you know, I thought, who even am I if I'm not contributing, if I'm not doing? So this fissure in who I was, like it felt like a massive crack that all of a sudden became so big that I fell into this abyss of identity that if I'm not this person who's achieving, winning, you know, being impressive, traveling the world, doing amazing things, it was almost like the pendulum swung the other way entirely, that all of that, you know, the the poison of not enoughness, of I have no worth, what's even the point of me, why do I even exist, just laying in bed all day, looking at the cracks in the painting on the ceiling or watching cars go by, it just felt like, what is What is my purpose as a human if I'm not contributing in any way? And the guilt and the shame piles up and piles up and piles up. And I know that this experience isn't your experience, but I know for a lot of the women who I coach, when they've had a divorce or when they get made redundant or when there's a diagnosis, there can then be this, what I describe as this drying out period from the addiction of doing. Is that your experience with yeah. any of the people you that know, what, you every
1: eh, Well, everything that you say is my experience. So this period of acceptance for me, you know, that has taken years. That has taken deep Okay, depression. good, because it's oh so easy. No, no, no. Well, I think this is the thing, isn't it? When you, when you kind of sum anything up in a nutshell, then the story gets lost, right? You know, we don't know the timescale. So for example, with my job. Yeah, when I became a psychotherapist. And I was actually, I'm pretty sure I went into therapy because I needed therapy. And I was, you know, I started working clinically. So this process for me, with all of these things, has pretty much gone on over a period of years. I went through a burnout a couple of years ago. And again, that was that was within the pandemic where I'd kind of upped the standards. And I think it's a it's a constant thing that's going to come up, especially if we have perfectionism and drive. as as part of who we are so for example going back to my work situation you know the nutshell thing was that I had to come to terms with the fact that I was a messy human doing a job that could not be the fantasy that I'd hoped it would have its messiness too and there were times when I was walking over Waterloo Bridge on the way into the clinic and I was struggling with my own depression and I was just feeling like who am I to do this job when I'm going through this. Who am I to do this job supporting people when I desperately need people but will not let others support me? You know, so there was an absolute process there that get you know so easily overlooked in a nutshell, isn't it? And I think with motherhood as well, I went into motherhood thinking I'm going to do this well, right? I'm going to do this same, well. This is going to be the thing that I'm going to thrive at. This is a, this is everything I've ever wanted. And there were times when I was walking down and I was I knew that I was living my own. Dream and hope and fantasy. And then the crack start show. And you know, it was all the mixture and mess of emotion that come with motherhood, the very normal human response to the circumstances, the exhaustion that, you know, for me and um, my second child had um, silent reflex. So, with the first one, he was very straightforward. And I, I was good at He kind of made it quite easy for me. It didn't—it wasn't really that much of a challenge of identity. We got into a nice routine. And that was you could that keep I, your costume on straight. I could keep straight. my costume on straight. And then the second one just completely turned that upside down, which in turn turned my identity upside down, because if I am not this good mom, then who am I? And there was a lot of hidden overwhelm, a lot of shame, a lot of hidden rage that went on behind the closed door. And then I would strut out into the sunshine with a double buggy and my costume would be back on. You know, so coming to that acceptance of this is not the fantasy you know, it is messy, just like me. And that has to be, I have to accept that and start to embody it. And then I could start to find more forgiveness for myself and work with the guilt and accept support because the shame wasn't telling me that I had to do it all on my own. Otherwise I was failing. So that process, it's been years and it's something that you ever had those fish oil tablets and then it kind of like comes back up. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It repeats <laughs> yeah. on you. So this is const- This is a process that is constantly repeating on me, and will probably be repeating on me in different contexts through the rest of my life. So I might have gathered, or, you know, I might have worked through the fact that right, I'm a mum. It's not a fantasy. This is real gritty reality, and I'm a real gritty mum. And I've, you know, I've got to let go of that ideal because it's exhausting. I just cannot meet it. And then something will happen, right? Even September, the kids go back to school and I'm like, I find this bit in me that's like, right, I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to get everything done on time. I'm going to be the one that sews the labels in. I'm going to be the one that like never forgets a bit of homework, you know? And and I feel it coming back. And I go, I scroll through social media and I see all these people doing all these things. And I'm like, I'm going to be that person this time. I'm going to get it right. Like I'm, you know, scrapping the old journal because it's messy and I've missed out pages. So I'm like, this time I'm going to get it right. And I feel it repeats on me and I have to go through that process and it might take hours. I might have to coach myself. Say, Anna, come on, <laughs> have some grace for yourself. Uh. You've never been that person. It's been exhausting. Let's just add a bit more kind of humanness and reality into this. Or I might really tussle with it, and that process might take months, maybe even years with a different thing. So it's, yeah, and the burnout, wow. I, I relate, you know, I never would have understood how physical burnout could be, whole nervous system. All I could do was lie on the sofa and face the sofa cushions and stare at the sofa cushions. I've never known anything like it, and I've never grown such a respect for my limits, because it terrified me. You yeah, know, I, I had three kids at that time. I couldn't yeah. function for them. So now I'm so much more respectful of that gap between the fantasy and the, you know, what's underneath the costume. So forevermore, the
0: fish oil burp effect. Yeah is now born. It is. (laughs) I love this this concept because it's the same. I have been doing this work for more than 15 years and I still have the official burp effect too. It's just like September comes around. It's like, right now I'm going to be that smug mom that makes the good organic lunches that, you know, has everything ready and marked and labeled and ready to go. And we went to my daughter's GCSE evening last night, and I already felt my eyes turning into spirographs around how intense. You know, they were using the phrase at her school: "Everybody, please prepare. This is going to be a marathon over the next
1: two years." Oh, gosh, I part can of it. My heart rate rising just <laughs> with that. Well, I was, you know, I was sat here this morning with a with a sharpie drawing different dots on the kids' clothes just so I could determine which one. Because I lay in bed last night having just spent two and a half hours. I was stickers. There was no sewing involved here. I've got stickers. I was sticking on things. I sat there for two and a half hours sticking them on. And then in the middle of the night, I was like, but how am I going to know who's whose? Because my boys are really similar sizes. So I was then thinking in the middle of the night, right, I'm going to get colored. I'm just going to draw colored dots on. So when I've done the washing, it's really easy. So have I been prepared? No, I've had some primed a pair of shorts because one of my sons has only got one, you know, and, and, and it's the night before school starts. So they haven't got water bottles, and haven't got a pencil case. yet. and you know, th- but and I've, I've be come okay. to accept. Yeah, it'll and this okay. is so that little that little nutshell at the beginning there. If it can go two ways, it can go either we exhaust ourselves trying to live up to our own fantasy and berate and shame ourselves when we fall short, which we will, or we come to a repeated fish but, You know, acceptance that we're messy humans. So therefore, pretty much everything we touch, like the Midas touch, is, is going to be a little bit messy. It is. It is. And I think it's particularly difficult for those who
0: are kind of addicted to achievement and proving and I'll show you and all of that unhealed stuff that is lurking beneath the surface that is holding that costume on. And I think... F- Again, I can speak for myself. It doesn't feel like I just have one perfectionist overachiever costume. It feels like I have multiple layers of them. So I'm the size of a sumo wrestler, like layers upon layers upon layers. So just when I take one off, it's like, yeah, but you're failing at that. Or this part of your life is a total dumpster fire. And I think Learning to be in the acceptance of the mess. What I want to share with listeners here is that it's not a one and done. It's not buy this book, go to that retreat, do this course. This is the work. And I reckon as long as I will have a heartbeat, I will be in the fish oil burp work. Yeah. And it's okay. It's okay. And I think I want to normalize that here Mm. because it's like gentleness, isn't it? Like, also, This idea that we need to go from this place of like, okay, the fantasy no longer exists. I get that. So I'm going to try to keep my costume on as straight as possible. I get that it's a little askew, but like a fedora, maybe it's okay. And even a little stylish if it's slightly askew. I can live with that. But then there's the relentless self-flagellation that still continues to exist underneath. And it's never yet been natural for me anyway to offer myself compassion or tenderness, because that would mean that I would need to accept those vulnerabilities and give myself permission that they even have space to exist in my being, in my identity, because they're just not part of the fantasy. So how does one do this? Like, I'm not asking for a 10-step plan, but if you happen to
1: have one, that yeah, would be... <laughs> yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? It would be great. doing those 10 steps forever and we'll always be at different points and different areas. How do we areas.
0: learn to give those, yeah. those parts of ourselves that don't fit the costume or yeah. the fantasy? How do we learn how to give them space? Yeah. How do we learn how to at least treat them with some dignity, like you're allowed to be here? How do we do that? Yeah, I think, you know, the
1: inner child you know that's one of the things that's coming up as you as you speak is that there is a little us inside that at each of those points you know it's like no I've got to do it right I'm scared I'm scared of what people think or I don't want to let anyone down and it's you know sometimes it is externalizing that as a conversation and thinking how would I speak to my child you know how would I respond to someone that I cared about who was voicing these fears and concerns just trying to go through that that process with yourself each time you notice at least and as we find compassion as we create space for the child and the children inside of us because sometimes you know there are different ones aren't they we identify yeah. different parts in their life Was all oh, that part of me Was I remember you know we might we might recall a time in childhood where that was that fear was really really pertinent and it's you know there's there's different theories that when traumatic or kind of really pertinent things happen we kind of get stuck at that point unless it's addressed with unless we can find kind of you know therapeutic compassion and and acceptance for that so sometimes it is literally recognizing asking ourselves what is that little bit in me and I identify it as you know in the morning when it's really early and the kids are up or you know, you've got to get out for work. And there's that part of you that's like, no, I don't want to I will turn over and stay in bed. and want to watch daytime TV and eat snacks. And then there's that other part of me that goes, right, come on Monday, we've got stuff to do up. We get get in the shower. And it's this constant interplay between that, that part of us that is that child is that vulnerable, you know, little person is that kind of stubborn. No, this is what I want to do kind of stomping feet. And I think the more we start to have a kind of dialogue with that part of us and less of the for goodness sake shut up you know don't be so ridiculous that that frustration that can pop out then the more we start to make make space to integrate that as part of who we are so it's less of an argument all the time and I think the other thing I really like is the thought of the first thought second thought so the first thought might be oh my gosh I've completely discovered that I've completely failed that you, you know Your muppet, how could you have done that again? And that, you know, that self, that self kind of criticism—that's the first thought. That's the bit that's wired, right? And then the second one—it's more conscious. It's us coming up against that with some kind, compassionate grounding words. It might be like, "Oh well, you know, these things happen. What's going on? What what pattern is repeating here? How might we how might we address this?" So it's that more kind of rational, kind maternal. If you want to use that kind of archetype approach but the important thing is is that we are bringing in that second that second voice because if that first one is wideness that one is the one that will kind of rain and be the loudest and it's tiring it's absolutely exhausting
0: before we finish let's recap these two brilliant tools so speak to yourself like you'd speak to a child when you can't uphold your really high standards Author and many time guest on this show, Susie Redding has a brilliant idea. She says, talk to yourself with a term of endearment. So talk to yourself saying sweetheart or dear one or my personal favorite, love bug. It can really help to shift that inner meanie from the mic inside your head. And for the second tool, please have a go with the first thought, second thought. And notice how jerky and unkind your first thought can be after you um, lock your keys in the trunk or maybe when you look at yourself naked after you're having a shower, or when you're trying to help your teenager with a particularly gnarly trigonometry problem. The juice, and hopefully the compassion, is in the second thought, people. Play with this, please. I've been trying it out, and the second thought is so much funnier and wiser than the first one. I like to think that my really cool, evolved, do-no-harm-but-take-no-shit future self is the voice, Of my second thought. Okay, let's get back to Anna. Oh, and a little heads up that there's a giveaway in the outro, so keep listening. What's your take on getting to you know, a lot of the a lot of the people who talk about I am enough and they put those little mantras on sticky notes and kiss themselves in the mirror. None of that stuff ever really appealed to me, though I have to confess I did try those things, but it never really worked because on some level, there are those little parts in me that never believed as a child that it was acceptable for me just to be loved and revered and worthy just because I existed, just because of my essence, that that always needed to be embellished with achieving. Now, the grown up, educated, logical me who gets all of this stuff in principle, when I've looked at this I am enough movement that exists, it's like, just love yourself. That's the, like, that's the <laughs> if, logical only, if solution. only it were that
1: simple, right?
0: If but only it were that simple. This idea, too, yeah. like that feels almost like a step too far because that would mean I would have to love all those air quotes, squinchy, you know, non achiever, like you know, the thought that I could simply be acceptable bends my brain just as the essence of me without overgiving or, you know, doing something or making casseroles or, you know, being the best friend or whatever it is like it, that is still mind boggling to me. And I'm learning that there's a middle ground between self-loathing or even self-hatred and I want to mention this book. I don't know if you've seen this brand new book from The School of Life. I love The School of Life. On self-hatred, learning to like oneself. So they call it
1: learning to like oneself. I like that. It's much, yes, yes, I like that.
0: But I feel I even need a step before that, which is like, I don't know what, there might be a name for this already, but what I'm aspiring to is just get to neutral. Like if you're driving a manual car, like get yourself into neutral because from there, there might be a moment on a good day where I'm like, quite rad actually. And then there will be those moments where, as I said, those old habits come back to the surface, but getting to a place of self-acceptance. Mm. Now that feels doable and it doesn't yeah, make acceptance. all of those parts go. Yeah. yeah. What, do, what do you think about that as a kind of interim step to self-love?
1: Right. I like that. And that was a word that was popping into my head as you were speaking, because, you know, we accept things that we don't, particularly like because we're we're choosing you know you might go on a I'm trying to think of an example but you know with the Alcoholics Anonymous it's you know it's it's part of their prayer isn't it I accept the things I cannot change I accept you know and I I want to address the things I can and give me the wisdom to know the difference that's really badly paraphrased but it's that word acceptance and it's it's accepting the things that we cannot change you know, there are some things we can, there are some things we can really work harder and we can change and we can start seeing shifts or hope. But there are some things in life that we cannot change. We don't like them. They might not sit well with us. They might make us sad. It might make us angry, but it's that acceptance. You know, it doesn't mean it has to love everything. It doesn't mean it has to love everything about it. It's just that you acknowledge that I accept myself where I am Right now, in knowledge of the things that I don't like, in knowledge of the things that don't actually really feel good enough, because maybe, maybe they actually aren't. No, there are definitely things around, around, around me that I don't feel good enough in, but perhaps sometimes it's because, you know, maybe I need to learn a new skill or a tool or a parenting approach or read up on something. So it's kind of sometimes looking at the things that we don't feel good enough in thinking, Is this something I can't change? Is it actually about coming to a place of acceptance? Mm. Is it something that I want to change? Is it something that maybe I need to change? And and I'm with you on the you are enough, you are enough. And I will say that the most life-changing times for me are when I realize that I'm not. You know, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be good enough to meet the standards that I sometimes hold for myself. I'm never going to be good enough to, to feel like I've accomplished everything that is going to make me feel to the core of me acceptable to the world I'm never going to be enough to fulfill my own needs I need other people and that is you know deeply uncomfortable but the acceptance of actually I'm I'm I have my limits I'm not enough sometimes has been has been life-changing
0: it's like Aikido, you know, they say that when you push against something, that part of you pushes back Yeah. Or the opponent, yeah. And if you stop pushing, it's almost like that soap bubble yeah. bursts Yes. and yeah. that it's like, yeah, okay. So if I could accept that in this part of my life, in this moment, so it doesn't need to be extrapolated into the future for all time, but in this moment, I haven't got the water bottles. The pencil cases are not purchased. I haven't made an organic pack lunch. And I'm not holding myself to that standard and it will still be okay. I can accept that for this moment. I think what I struggle with is now I'm supposed to accept this for all bloody moments for all time. And then it feels like, no, that's not, that is not acceptable, but there's something about chunking it down into a tiny Lego block of this moment. And then it feels like "Ah, tomorrow's a new day. I can try peeling some carrots and make, you know, putting some hummus in the lunchbox and, Going back to that. So it's, I like this idea that it's okay if the costume is not on straight. It's okay if the fantasy, you know, it's called a fantasy for a reason. And being, being with ourselves and having at least, even if it's not compassion, even if that's a step too far, being able just to accept that this is where I am in this moment, and it's okay. That feels mm-hmm. doable.
1: Yeah, an acceptance doesn't necessarily mean, you know, people might say, well, that so I've just got to put up with this then. So if I accept it, I never should should never want to be more, should never want to change things. But actually, you know, the more we accept our limits, the less stuck we get. So for example, if I just accepted that I had perhaps, perhaps there was a whole area of learning in my career that I really needed to learn. But if I was just saying, you know what, I'm just gonna accept where I am, I'm gonna accept it, then I wouldn't. You know, I'm going to stop striving. I'm going to stop striving for growth. I'm going to stop. I'm buckling up over here. (laughs) But then I would never never be driven to equip myself in something that I needed. So I think it's accepting where we are on our journey and knowing that it's okay to want more for ourselves. But is that realistic? Like, where are we we aiming for? And sometimes knowing our limits is the kindest thing that we can do for ourselves. It actually gets us unstuck. Because instead of being scared of and trying to avoid striving, we start realizing that the areas in which we can grow and letting go of the kind of the shame and guilt for the areas in which we've been rating ourselves for not growing enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a great alternative to the
0: fantasy as well, because the fantasy is always it's that mirage on the horizon that even when you do achieve this and that there's always the next thing and the next thing. And so it's like a series, Mm. a hall of mirrors of mirages. And that's why it feels so exhausting and ultimately unfulfilling. Whereas being in the acceptance, although there might be an initial deflation there, because that's the antidote to the fantasy, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, it's a
1: loss. Sometimes it's a grief. was yeah. so like, oh, this isn't, I remember my first book being out and I cried all day. And it wasn't with, I thought I would feel amazing. I thought I would feel like I've achieved something that I dreamed of and I, and I did, and I had, but it didn't change who I was. And I was kind of hoping there was a part of me, you know, the fish burp that was like having the book out, this, this is the pinnacle. I'm mm. going to feel like, finally, I will be able to accept myself. Finally, I will feel like I've done right by the world. And I cried at the loss of that because I didn't feel, I wake up, I didn't feel any different. Ugh. And I, I yeah, that. it does. And I remember listening to a podcast with Robbie Williams and he was speaking to Sam Cotton, I think it was. And he said, you know, I got to the point where I had one world records and the number of um, tickets sold. Like my albums were, you know, I was was on the top of the mountain by the world's standards. And I still wanted to kill myself because he was so depressed. And he thought, you know, all of this striving, 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 striving will do if we ever reach where we feel we want to be. You're right. You know, another peak of the mountain suddenly appears Mm -hmm. beyond the ledge. And suddenly we think, well, this, I don't feel enough. And I thought I would. So uh, maybe the answer is to push harder and strive harder and and reach higher. And actually, you know, to accept ourselves along the journey is a huge and countercultural thing to do, because yeah. the world and our culture is fueled on us believing that we need to be more to be accepted. So you know, it is a constant fishbuck thing because it's coming at us from all angles. It's quite possibly coming come at us since childhood. Yeah, you know, so it, this is why it's something we'll be forever working on. But I would say it gets a little bit, you start noticing yeah, earlier I I when, it, when it's surging up and it does, you know, that second, that second voice that can start coming in a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. So there is change and I, and I am loving that. I ask every guest to leave a brick of wisdom, whatever may have
0: jiggled up in this conversation that you want to leave as parting words, what would you say to someone who's really resonating with everything you've said today?
1: I think it's, you know, have a little read of the serenity prayer that they use in the, in the AA. Um, Cause I've gone through that with clients before and that, and it's just, you know, it's those first few lines about, you know, I set, I accept the things I cannot change. And yeah, what, what have you been feeling guilt and shame around? That is just a part for you, and perhaps you need to go through a little grieving process there. That you know, maybe you will rather be that fantasy. You know, what can you change? Actually, what might be good to change, and how might you do that in a really respectful and doable way? And might need to talk to someone to to help you work out the difference between those two things. Yeah, because sometimes other people have insight.
0: How brilliant is Anna? Find her on Instagram at Anna mather. That's A-N-N-A-M-A-T-H-U-R. She also has a beautiful new book called The Little Book of Calm for Mums. Here's what it's about.
1: So The Little Book of Calm for New Mums is basically a book of pep talks. It's those kind of kind comforting words from a friend or someone who knows you when you need them most so you go through you read what there's a list of emotions you pick one you choose one it might be boredom loneliness resentment and then you flip to a page and then you get some words kind of grounding words to help bring some clarity into that emotion and most importantly to bring some compassion into it
0: and now it's giveaway time The first five people to write an Apple podcast review and send me a pic of it at hello at that's hello at M-A-N-D-Y-L-E-H-T-O dot will get a free copy of Anna's new book posted to them. These will go super fast, so get your Apple podcast reviews on for enough the podcast. All these details and show transcript will also be in the show notes. Thank you in advance for sharing this episode. The world needs more of Anna's wisdom. And as ever, thank you so much for listening. Let's do this all again in two weeks.